sort of say like what would make this easy and we, we usually know the answers to those questions and I think as we talk about sort of finding our way through in a really complicated time reminding yourself to say what would make this easy the world has never been changing more rapidly dislocating the ways we work learn and live on the learning future podcast we discuss the knowledge skills and dispositions we all need for our learning future exploring insights with world-class educators researchers policymakers and leaders from across industries and across the world Hello and welcome to the Learning Future Podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today it's my delight to be speaking with Dr. Karen Edge. She's a researcher, a leader, and an author, and is currently a reader in educational leadership at University College London Institute of Education, where she also recently served as pro-vice provost in, for the international arm at University College London. She has conducted research in over 30 countries in our world, including a six-jurisdiction study of teacher motivation and retention, and she really focuses on this idea of Generation X school leaders, uh, which she's focused on across London, New York City, and Toronto with a specific Global City Leaders Project to try to understand more about the work, lives, and ambition of these really crucial elements of education systems, the leaders themselves. Karen is also preparing two books on Gen X leadership and city-based education policy contexts, and she completed her PhD in Knowledge Management and Educational Reform at the Ontario Institute of Education at the University of Toronto. Hello, Karen. Thank you for being on the Learning Future podcast. Hi, Luca. Thanks. It's such a delight to be speaking with you today, Karen. Uh, like all our conversations, it's all focused on learning. What is something that you have learned recently in this remarkable time in which we find ourselves? It's, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about that question this morning. What I've most recently learned is how disgusting it is to step on a slug with your bare feet. Um, as, 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 as I tend to <laughs> bringing in the bins this morning, the glamorous life of living in London. Mm. Um, but I think one of the things that I've learned that's really been brought home over the last little while is how, how so many of us around the world are carrying different degrees of trauma from the pandemic. Yeah. And you and I've talked about this before, but I think we don't have any idea what the experience has been like for anyone. And until you actually pause and ask that question, all the learning that we're trying to do and all the support and development work we're trying to do first has to sort of carry and care for that. Mm. And I think it's really, really important to try and understand what the experience has been like. So even for those, you know, talking to people in different countries, talking to an Australian six weeks ago was a completely different experience than it is talking yeah. to an Australian living in a state now. And I think um, it's made me a lot more sensitive to what other people have gone through and what they're carrying, not just in terms of the pandemic, but in terms of life in general. Yeah, it seems, you know, in a world where we can be anything, choosing kindness seems to be a pretty good starting point right now. And I, I also am curious about how this connects to leadership, Karen, which has been a big focus of your work, particularly around school leaders that are themselves under really significant pressure with the on again, off again, constantly changing policy frameworks and kind of administration and management of vaccines and masks and density in classrooms. What, what's something in that space from the work that you do globally um, that you think is really important to pay attention to at this point? So I think a lot of our work looks at um, sort of how people are leading and teaching in different countries. And I believe quite firmly that we can learn so much more by not necessarily just comparing the work of individual school leaders, but looking at the, the policy context. Like, what is it like to be an adult in country X? Yeah. compared to country Y, and then what does that mean for how we look at leadership? And I think the big fault of educational leadership research is that often we, we look at, you know, what is it like to be a women leader in England? And then we look, we assume that it's exactly the same in other countries, not accounting for sort of patterns of misogyny or patterns of, right. of how adult life is, you know, what is childcare like? What is maternity leave like? So I think in terms of the pandemic, leaders have had really different roles in terms of what they have been responsible for, in terms of how much of the life of their community have they been responsible for. So we just did a, a talk for one of the side events, the Global Partnership for Education um, with Deborah um, Kimanthi from oh, Dignitas, that you know. Yes, and I was asked to sort of make some comments at the end. And I one of the things that I said was, you know, we need to really pause and think about 
we've le- we can learn so much at this moment about what we expect our leaders to do. So in England, school leaders have been responsible for delivering food to families. Wow. So there are so many families in England who would get free school meals, but the government doesn't have an infrastructure because they've eroded the local authorities. So everything falls to the schools, but the schools are all doing it on their own because they don't belong, many of them don't belong to clusters of schools. So they've been responsible for shifting to online learning. They've been responsible for you know delivering the curriculum, taking care of their teachers. Secondary schools have had to do testing, mm. but they've also been responsible for caring for their community versus looking at Ontario, which is where I am from by sort of heart and soul and accent. And because there's really strong districts there, the districts have carried a lot of the weight of trying to figure out if there's people who can't go into schools and protecting their leaders. So I think that the, the foundation of how we go forward is being really mindful of how much have leaders had to carry. But then thinking about that notion of kindness, I've done quite a lot of work over the 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 pandemic and we're mm. still live in it, you know, yes. we have 20,000 cases a day. Um, I've done a lot of work with leaders to, to have conversations with their teachers about how are they, yeah. right? Like, what do you need from me at this moment? Are you okay? Like, it's, I can't expect you to deliver great lessons if you are having trouble getting dressed in the morning. And I think that mm-hmm. our leaders deserve that same ethic of care, but it's also difficult when we don't have that infrastructure in England, unless you're part of a multi-academy trust, there's no one to care for the leaders. Right. So you know, we've been trying to lead, you know, there's lots of work around sort of leading with the question why. Part of what I think we're trying to do is lead with the question how, like, how are you, right? How has it been delivering? How has it, you know, how have you experienced this and how has that sort of broken you or fixed you or bruised you in a way that allows you to go forward. Wow, that's all really quite profound. Just think about uh, the role of leading a learning community, a learning organization was challenging in 2019. Uh, And and I just, you said this word, you know, how we pause. And actually some of the work we've been lucky to collaborate on together, be it with Scottish principals or across in Ontario as well. Let's try to focus on this. What is it now that we should do in terms of building back better? I mean, there must be things that we should leave behind in your view as someone that spent, you know, a great number of years really focused on leadership and how it differs. How do, how do we shift the policy frameworks uh, or the city-based education policy context mm-hmm. so that they really liberate leaders to do their best work and that in turn, of course, means creating the right types of cultures and environments in which educators can educate well and learners can learn optimally, you know, across all the different dimensions that we want that to be taking place in. And again, I think this this depends on sort of how your system is structured, right? So you have listeners from around the world. It depends on, you know, are your schools clustered together and is there a district that supports them? And at what level does policy or incentives change to help leaders be their best selves and do their best work. And I'm supervising a a master's student at the moment named Hannah Winokur, who's doing an amazing piece of work on rest. And what she wanted to do was talk to leaders about well-being and about rest as a a sub-construct of that. So the notion of sort of pausing and resting has been really interesting. And there's some um, sort of in in the news and on a Harvard Business Review, and I think even Fast Company had an article this week about Um, How much rest and quiet do you need? Mm. And in comparison to the chaos in your work world, you need a certain amount of quiet to be able to recalibrate and that we don't talk about that. So I think in terms of, um, I try and avoid building back better, but in terms of, in terms of sort of stepping forward gently um, or, or with care, what's, what I think is the most important is to almost adopt a sort of minimalist approach which is sort of, you know, what are the the foundations that we've needed to deliver? How well have we been able to deliver those? What did we deliberately or accidentally get rid of? And do we need to bring any of that stuff that we've been able to put to the side back? Mm. And I think that it's not a complicated set of questions. I think, um, you know, there's, I, I don't know if you're the same, but sort of every once in a while, I'll be sitting around like in the middle of, you know, I don't sleep terribly much, but I'll be sitting around in the middle of the night or out for a walk and I'll be like, oh, minimalism in the and leadership together, you know, actually shedding the stuff that you don't need and, and prioritizing yeah. the stuff 
you want, right? It's kind of like the condoification of leadership. So <laughs> I went and bought like minimalistleader.org and it just sits there, which is how I sort of place mark the ideas. But I think in terms of that sort of stepping forward carefully, mm. it's about thinking about what, what have been the benefits of the, the way we've worked and how we've worked. And it's, um, you know, we, we did a talk, I did a talk for Scottish leaders and we were talking about generational theory. And I said, you know, there's going to be a lot of unexpected gains from this. So when we were working remotely, you're going to have a set of boomers and old Xers who never really worked with technology who are now going to be completely savvy. Yeah. But you're also going to have a set of um, Gen Ys who want to work freely from different places, who've now tasted the freedom of delivering education with some space. Mm. So as you go down from boomers to Ys to Zs, there's a bigger drive for work-life balance. There's a bigger drive for freedom. And that's why we're struggling with retention. So yeah. I think there's the moments where we can pause now and say, okay, what can we get rid of? What really counts? What's important? And I worry that in countries like ours in England, we're so quick to still try and measure everything to death that yeah. we're, we're sort of quashing our kids and our teachers as we do it. So yeah, there's, a, there's just, there's a lot to think about, but I think we also don't pause. My hope every time we open up, so if, if I was prime minister, before we would open up again, we would have the sort of warning window of two weeks, this is how we're gonna be opening up, but then we would actually have a day of national pause Oh, to just yeah, rest yeah. and recalibrate, not to work, so that we actually go back refreshed. Because here we've been doing this for you know ins and outs and high virus rates, and it's, it's still really stressful. Um, but we haven't instituted pause as a policy, and I actually think that we would be really well served for our educators and our students and teachers to just say, okay, we're going to have a day or half day even. What have we learned? How has this changed us? What does it mean in terms of what we need to learn and go forward and, you know, then to take some mm. action? It, it's, a, it's a complicated, complicated time. And it's, I think the hardest thing is that it's testing relationships in a way that it hasn't before. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's great, Karen. There's so much we could pick up there. Uh, I read something from Adam Grant recently where he said personality is – who you are when things are going easily but, yeah. and character is who you are when things are difficult. And it really seems to be this moment of character, certainly from a leadership lens as well. I mean, if there's ever been a leadership moment, it's actually when there's a crisis. Uh, it's easy to be a, you know, a fair weather leader in some, reg some regards. Um, and so it's interesting to look at, and I know we've had this conversation as well, the different leadership approaches that have been taken in the policy realm, you know, be the public policy or educational policy as well, since we yeah, all kind of were hit by the pandemic at differing levels and at different paces and different times. What is a, what is a, um, just, just to sort of interject, one of the yeah. things that we talked about with the, um, with Deborah and the crew, um, we were talking about sort of leading back, sort of like leading back better and, and what does it look like? And I said, what we haven't done as a community, as a leadership community, whether you're a, a scholar or a, a practice-based leader or an organizational leader, is to stop and say, okay, how is leadership by action or definition changed in my country or my community as a result of the pandemic? Mm. So I said, you know, it will be a lot more difficult for leaders to lead in England and the US. They have a bit better now with Biden, but, you know, there's lots of conflict. But if, if truth has faded away during the pandemic or science has faded away during a pandemic and lying has become OK, your ability to build trust with your school communities has changed because everyone in your community will have witnessed an erosion of what we traditionally held true with leadership. So like, it will be a lot easier to lead, my guess is in New Zealand, yeah. than it would be at the moment in England Yeah. as a school leader, because you've, you know, everything that they've done during the pandemic has been about building community and protecting the community and nurturing the connections to keep everyone safe. Whereas where I am at the moment, it's been about fracturing the community. It's been about ignoring the science. It's been about not telling the truth and about creating divisions. 
And we forget, I think, how deeply that will root in mm. society. And that that will then make the job of our school leaders that much more difficult. And what, what do we then do as scholars and developers and, you know, supporters and advocates to, to make sure they're okay? That's such a great point. Yeah, it's, it's as if the, the backdrop has just shifted completely yeah. and in, diff- in very in radically different ways. I think, and uh, I mean, the Australian story with COVID is is a great example. I mean, it has everything has changed for us in ten weeks, in two months, really. Um, and now we're we're already moving to this. We're going to have to live with COVID, whereas before our entire policy approach was community elimination. You know, seal off the international borders and bring people in slowly through a medi hotel program. So, yeah, you can already see the shifting sands here in the political space um, in a big way. And, like, you know, the, the kind of blame that, you know, like rightly or otherwise, that kind of gets um, thrown around as well. I'm, I'm really curious. I'm really curious about this piece on retention, um, mm-hmm. Karen, because I'm, as you know, like I'm just so passionate about visiting the future and, well, the futures as often as possible, and then thinking about, okay, if that's the case, what do we need to do today? Um, what, what do you think one of the changes is around leadership? As you say, generationally, which has been you know, a, a great portion of your work, with this, you know, systems aren't very well designed to enable the flexibility and the adaptive nature of the kind of work from anywhere life. I mean, most people, when, you, you know, when I study to be a teacher, the assumption made is that I will be in a physical school five days a week for a significant period of years. So where do you think, how do you think that will shift? Because the pandemic, as you say, has accelerated it in a significant way. Hybrid, hybridization, the idea of you know, not schools actually not all going back to five days full time, but actually having yeah. you know, this kind of blended approach that actually is, is well designed now, not just a kind of an emergency teaching approach, which educators did a remarkable job of putting in place you know, with less than 24 hours notice in some cases. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's what's your what's your feeling on that? Like you can see the trend from where your vantage point. What do you think yeah, we might so head think, to? So part of it is sort of taking a step back. So like what inspired my interest in trying to blend generational theory and leadership theory, which was one of the first times that it was done, mm. was the fact that I had observed occasionally, you know, leaders who had started as teachers and moved up the ranks really, really quickly and then left school leadership and gone on to do some really exciting things. But a decade ago, they were an anomaly. And depending on the jurisdiction that you were in, a young leader faced different challenges. So in Ontario, there was less of a, like people didn't get that excited about a young leader because they still would have had to follow all of the, you know, the standard regulations to become a leader. Here, where it's a bit of the Wild West, and we've actually thrown away our leadership credentials in England, right. um, we'll still do them, but you're not required to have them. Um, and you get hired by a governing school body. So mm. like a group of parents and teachers will hire the principal. Just let that simmer. Um, so what's really interesting is that it was harder for some young leaders to get jobs. If you weren't a white guy, it was ex- excessively more complicated. But what was interesting is where these sort of high achiever, high flyers were the anomaly before. So, you know, people like Susan Douglas, people like there's lots of people scattered around England who had moved really quickly. Um, It wasn't the norm. And what I was observing was part of it was, is they'd started really young and being a school leader for 30 years is, is exhausting. And the challenge was, is that I was watching the new cohort of Gen Gen X's come in and take on leadership, maybe five to 10, 15 years younger than their previous generation of leaders. And the challenge was, is I thought, holy crap, you can beat me out if you need to. What happens, what happens if the anomaly, which was, you know, these people who are rock stars, like Liz Robinson, who's now at school 21, you know, these people who moved really quickly, but there were only like a handful of them. What happens if an entire generation of leaders burns out of leadership after 10 years, Mm. right? They're not anomalies anymore. Now they go from an anomaly to a pack. So you're part of, you know, 
you would have been an anomaly before, but the mm. leaders coming after you, it's happening more and more often. So what we were trying to understand is, you know, is it a generational pattern? Is it a, there is really a lifespan of a principal pattern? And then the, oh my gosh, what do we do to try and make it work pattern? So one of the wow. things that some jurisdictions are really good at doing is taking principals out of the building and putting them in districts and giving them some secondment opportunities, but then some countries can't do that or won't do that. Mm. So we look at re retention as sort of the first part of your question is sort of a, you know, people have historically looked at recruitment only. How do we get people into the building? And we've started to really argue for over the last five years, keeping them in the building is going to take some really creative solutions. And it's mm. going to take career breaks. It's going to take secondments. It's going to take academic study leave. It's going to take contribution to bigger policy. And most systems aren't designed for that. Yeah. So the question, the, the the response and policy question is: You look at organizations that are really good at retaining millennials and Xers, and it's because there's a certain degree of freedom. Like you look at the foosball tables and the you know math. Yeah, sure. yeah. Our education system. Yeah, yeah. Our education system and our buildings aren't prepared for that. So, so the issue is, is what I will, people will often get quite angry about, you know, these millennial teachers or young Xers who are you know, demanding all these things. And my standard response is, you've done this, right? Like you took away their rows, you put them in circles, you gave them problem-based learning, you told them that they had a voice, you told them that they could create talent. <laughs> so you have created a generation that are now your employees, which should be strengthening your work because you've built them like that. But now you're annoyed because they're challenging, you know, the status, status quo. quo. So from a from a policy perspective, I think that in order for us to be able to retain the amazing talent that we've grown, we're going to have to be a lot more flexible in terms of how we think about careers. And it's going to nest in schools working together, giving people a chance to go out and back. Um, possibly not necessarily breaking the bonds of a, an individual teacher over the course of a full year but allowing teachers to know that it's not one classroom, one building for the rest of your life, yeah. that they can see and construct almost sort of a, you know, a, a micro credentialing approach, yeah, great. which will allow them to say, I really want to become expert in this. Yeah. And this is the best school for me to do that. So having many more sort of teacher swaps over periods of time mm. and allowing people that flexibility and hybridity. So maybe you've got a team that for one term a year or for one year delivers online content um, for kids who aren't able to come to school and not, and then they go back into the classroom. But it's sort of taking that notion, I think, of hybridity and applying it to everything. So is it, you know, hybrid in terms of how much you're at home, how much you're at school? Is it in terms of how much you're online, how much you're face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. how much you're learning versus how much you're delivering, um, yeah. how much you're observing in terms of how much you're sharing? And I think that that's scary, right? And trying to have those conversations when people are traumatized is really difficult. So this notion of like building back better for so many people, they're just trying to stop falling over. And the thought of, of having to change something going forward is petrifying. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a piece of research that came out over the last six months that said like people, the optimal learning amount is like 15%. I tried to find it uh, yesterday, right. Right. but it's like 50, 85% of what you know and 15% new. I so see. like for jurisdictions thinking about building back better, you know, tweak 15%, keep the 85% and remind people you're keeping it. Mm -hmm. And then you know, change 15. And when everyone is comfortable with that, then you sort of, you know, you've got a new 85%. Yeah. But I think that's the notions of future and hybridity are about, you know, I think systems that change well, change by tweaks, not by overhaul. And I'm in a system that overhauls. So at the moment, they're talking about overhauling all of teacher training, whereas a system like Ontario is tweaking and Singapore yeah. is tweaking. Yeah. So my advice is around tweaks, around expanding notions of hybridity, around thinking about what the generations that we've trained want and need from their careers, and finding a way to allow that to actually permeate into our decision making. Gosh, it's so interesting, Karen. There's two, two threads I want to pull here. The, the I'll put them both on the, on the table and then we can go one way. Uh, the first is around change and how change happens because it does seem there are largely an oversimplification, but two camps. One camp is we need a revolution. We need a complete overhaul. And then there's the other, which we might call, you know, tra the transformation camp. And then there's yeah. the improvement camp, which is, well, actually, we just want to keep tweaking towards, you know, 
a forever better iterated experience. And I mean, in my own journey, I, I usually position myself in the first camp, like, yeah, we need to shake things significantly, like deal with the dissonance and then reform, or transform um, in a powerful way. But yeah, it's, it's, easy to, it's easy for that to become rhetoric and not to actually be grounded in any true experience. I mean, how many revolutions have actually succeeded if we look across human history and haven't ended up in some kind of dictatorship despot kind of environment anyway. So that's the first piece I want to... Are I you wanna, addicted um, to Luca Perry? <laughs> <laughs> Ladies yes, and gentlemen, no. Perry. <laughs> benevolent, <laughs> benevolent. But no, it's... Um, so I'm just so interested in exploring that. And the second thing I want to just put on the table as well is, is around the future of work. Because I think you've yeah. just so beautifully articulated and woven together, like every single school is talking about, you know, the skills of tomorrow and the dispositions and the knowledge that's required. And as educators and leaders, we're working very hard to try to deliver that. But system, as, you, as you've pointed out, systems aren't yet good at kind of turning that lens back on themselves and saying, well, actually, how can we prepare young people for, I mean, prepare, like, equip and empower young people for today and tomorrow if we are still kind of stuck within a past paradigm of our own work life? And yeah, that's something really, really interesting to think about and to see which, you know, comparatively in the specific context, which systems are kind of having a real crack at enabling that and which ones are not yet having that conversation. So two big areas to go into. Which one do we tackle first? Yeah. I think, um, so the first one, <laughs> dictator. I think, um, I, so I come from a, a province of tweakers for the most part. Um, and I hope that that is not a bad word in any country. I don't, I don't, I don't maybe in the, you know, maybe you're using it in a particular way. <laughs> so no, Karen. <laughs> not twerker, tweaker. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think that, so I come from, you know, a, a mm. system that traditionally has been very successful, but they've been very successful by collaborating with professionals and researchers. And so they built a network of every major stakeholder that needs to be involved mm. to create policy. And they've used evidence in a very sophisticated way. It's not um, in England at the moment, we want every school to be research informed. But when you're, you know, people take a lifetime to become really skilled at using research, but now we're expecting our teachers to do that on top of everything else. Yeah. And so I probably fall in the, the tweaking camp and I, I wouldn't use transform or improve. As, as labels, and I know that you've just kind of tossed those out because I think that, you know, it's almost sort of revolution or status quo. And I think that when people are talking about how to improve a system, it literally is those two things. Yeah. People will divide into revolution or status quo, forgetting that there's a, there's a middle way. Yeah. So um, I have an amazing 10-year-old and there's a few things that we learned as we went into lockdown the first time. One was I taught him negotiation theory, which I will always forget. Like I will, I will, I will that never. Sounds, that sounds forgive, dangerous, Karen. Well, part of it was that I didn't want to. I didn't want to live on my own with a ten-year-old who wasn't able to articulate why something would be good for me. I just uh, thought, like you know, ridiculous, consistent asking wasn't good. So now I get really well-formed arguments. Oh, um, better, yeah. the, the second thing that we learned um, was around sort of having open conversations about what we needed and what we could do to make things better. So it wasn't that we were going to pick up and move country because there was a, a pandemic. Mm. We were going to figure out how to live where we were and make it better for us in, a, in incremental ways. And right. I think that that was very much rooted in how, you know, how I've grown up. And I think the danger of the polarization of that mm. discussion, it's happening, you know, it happens here in terms of skills and knowledge. It has yeah. everywhere. False dichotomy. Think, but is. I think it's, this is what I was saying about, you know, where leaders are at the moment and where countries yeah. are, and where systems are at the moment. We've lost our ability to exist in the middle space, right? Mm. You're very quick to try and understand who someone is by putting them in a particular camp. camp. Yeah. And I think that there's a, the, the third thing that Isaac and I learned was about um, sort of Buddhist theories around sort of the middle way and finding space in between that it's not black or white. It's, you know, there is an option in the middle and what would that option be? And how do you help people find what that middle way is? Mm. So I think that I, I never really side with the revolutionaries because I don't think that that will ever get us anywhere. 
And I think that winning the hearts and minds of people, it goes back to that 85%, right? To be able to say to someone, look, I think based on evidence that 85% of what you're doing is working, but there is some room for growth. What, what do we collectively want to see happen? And I think that rarely do you see sort of the transformation building from the bottom, right? You always see the transformation arguments coming from the top, whereas you see what you would have called the improvement efforts often coming from the schools, as long as they have the space and encouragement to do that. So I think that, you know, in, in Canada, which is where Greenpeace originated, like I always think about it, I used to think about this in in sort of in university when I was trying to convince university professors, like part of my job when I graduated was working with university professors to improve their teaching. And I remember Sounds explaining, easy. yeah, well, I was a 23 year old and that imagine, but it was awesome and it yeah, worked. Right. And some of the stuff that we did is still there in place, mm, you know, so many awesome. years later. But it was because we did it slowly, we embedded it. But I tried to explain at one point, I can remember saying, look, we're not Greenpeace, right? Like what I don't want to do is go and drop a bomb of we're going to change everything forever and the world is a mess. What I want to be is the people that can actually do the little work after Greenpeace. So you need someone who's going to come in and say, whoa, this is, you know, this is not right. You know, do we need a better way? What can we do? And then you've got a series of other smaller, less confrontational advocates mm -hmm. who work to try and bolster that change. So it's almost like, yes, we need people who can argue effectively for there needs to be a different future. But unless you have that sort of stream of little boats coming after you with yeah. different suggestions and trials and innovations that people can actually hook on to, mm. um, it's going to be difficult. So I, th I think, um, you know, I, I always worry a little bit about futurists. Um, no offense. No, None, if, a futurist dictator. Um, because I think I think sometimes thinking of the future is really scary, yeah. especially when it feels like you don't understand the now. Mm. And so I wonder sometimes if almost if we change that notion of a future as well, like, yeah, it's, it's what's coming up, but we're going to build it based on what we know now. Yeah. And I think there's that finding that space where people are safe and comfortable, where the really good ideas come from that, you know, the skills that we need to create that change and move it forward would, would come together. That's brilliant, yeah. Karen. That's really, that's really fascinating. Um, I, I mean, I, I really feel like when we do get stuck in the future, I mean, it's impossible not to be anxious, particularly yeah. when we see the IPCC report or we see conflict in the Middle East, you know, and I think even if you're for young people today, you know, like the future's, it's a scary future actually so um and of course if we're stuck in the past we become depressed so you know really it's the, the true liberation only exists in how we show up now and how we act now and so I, I really like your analogy of yeah you know and you spoke about this before it's it's like we focus on the why that's great but it's actually shifting to the how as as much yeah. as we can as well um so we before um before we turned on the microphones um you'll know that i was getting some messages from my 10 year old and today was dentist day. So he was going to the dentist. And honestly, over the course of the last week, he's been really, really stressed out about going to the dentist. And he knows that most of the times you go to the dentist, it's fine. He, I said, you know, do you want to look up some, you know, how do you deal with anxiety as a kid going to the dentist? And he informed me that he'd already read everything and that the NHS website for kids and dentistry was the best. And he read me the list of what was going on. He also informed me that he had accidentally searched um, a set of phrases around chipped molars that ended up landing him on a site that said, you can't access this because somebody's enabled anti, you know, anti-dirty stuff. Right. Um, so it was the first time he discovered that I've actually managed his phone quite well. But one of the things that, that he's said, he's got some of these catchphrases that he's used over the course of his life. But one of the things, um, he went to a, a football trial and it was really stressful and he was having a really difficult time managing his anxiety. Mm. And he went, when he came out, he was buoyant and vibrant and happy. And mm. I, I said to him, like, what, what have you learned? And he said, I've learned that my 630 self would tell my 430 self not to worry. It's going to be fine. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> And so today when he was at the dentist, um, his dad sent me a message and a picture to say, you know, he's having a pain au chocolat because the, the teeth are fine. Um, 
but I asked his dad to ask him, what would the 11 o'clock self tell his nine o'clock self? And I think that when we talk about sort of skills and knowledge and, and what students need to know, I don't think we're doing a good enough job. There are some programs that are. So like looking at the work that um, Joanne Machichin is doing in Australia and other countries, I think, you know, that are helping kids sort of sit and understand that, you know, there's going to be a pattern and a cycle of, of learning and extension and trauma and risk that I'm going to deal with over the course of my life. And if we could equip our kids now to understand, like, this is my nine o'clock self. What would my 11 o'clock self tell me when it's done and give them a set of those skills? I think that as adults, we would have a have countries and jurisdictions that are much better able to deal with this kind of conflict because they're able to understand there's a middle way. Yeah. They're able to understand that fear is normal and that being anxious is normal and that you have a community around you on purpose if you're really lucky to help you solve that, whether it's your kid peers or your teacher peers or your family. Um, and I, I don't think we're doing a good enough job in our schools of equipping kids with that skill. And I think in part, it's probably because we have generations of teachers who themselves are not equipped with that skill. Mm. And if there was one thing that I think we could invest our time in, and this sort of goes to a lot of the work that you're doing with uh, Karanga and, and on social emotional learning, it's being able to, how can we very quickly and safely enable the adults in our communities to learn how to stop, to be able to hold their emotions, to be able to think about what is causing their own, you know, barrier or hurdle to getting to the next point and then finding some ways to support them through that because it's only then that they'll be able to support the students mm. so I think there's a you know there's a lot it goes back to that sort of notion of transformation versus school improvement yeah uh, and you can hear some beeping in the background we have a watch somewhere in the house that beeps at this time that, every day and it still haven't found it but in terms of in terms of going back to like the, those notions of minimalism, mm. I've decided that I don't care. And every day when it rains, I'm like, yeah, not on my to do list. Mm. It's done. That's great. That's it's so. That's great, Karen. All of that, and I think that I'd love to get a quick comment from you as well about that piece because it links to the other, you know, theme that we're also picking up, which is how do we design the teacher experience. So that mm -hmm. it's different and it actually, you know, equips and liberates our educators to be able to draw from a, the, a well of those, of those skills and those dispositions and, and those knowledge sets. What, how, how might we do that in a powerful way? Because big systems, even if we're just changing 15%, they, they seem frustratingly slow, I think, sometimes to shift. And that's because they self-sustain is fantastic you know complex dynamic systems they often seek some kind of homeostasis um, and repel innovations that challenge too much the paradigm um, even though they do incredible work and contribute you know to to young people's lives and career trajectories what's what's a couple of things you think if we're having this conversation in 10 years time is different about the teacher experience you know I, ITE you know your master's students in 10 years time or PhD students what what's shifted potentially for them? Um, so I think I'm afraid of the future. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I would probably, and, and part of it is, is because the now is really bloody stressful. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to tweak your question probably. And it's sort of, you know, for me, what could, what could leaders do now? Mm or teachers do now that would enable a better future, right? So what we need is teachers and leaders who are committed to making it a great place to work. And there's probably two things that I would say, like we, we collectively, like academics and leaders, we know what it's like to feel like part of a great team, right? Like if you ask people, like when you were part of a team and it worked, what was it that made it work? So whether it was a sports team, you know, your family holiday went really well, yeah. you know, a great relationship. The characteristics of, of that sort of peak team experience, we know what those are based on psychology and management theory and everything else. We know what makes 
a productive organization in terms of an individual's experience. So there's a set of things, whether you look at, um, you know, psychological safety, whether you look at organizational learning, they're all different hooks that really explain the same thing, which is I like where I work. I feel respected. I feel like it'll be okay if I make a mistake and I can learn something new. And I think that we spend too much time investing in all these bells and whistles. Mm. And if we simply turned it around and said, what would it take to make you love your job? And there are leaders who've done that. And they've said, you know, teachers have said, I hate not being able to go to my friend's wedding because I can only take holidays and term time. And there's some leaders um, that we've worked with in London. Uh, Rebecca Kramer is one who's an extraordinary head teacher who basically said to recruit teachers to her school that they, I think they get five days of term time leave. There's a set of restrictions on when they have to use them. They have to ask a certain time in advance, but everyone commits to doing cover Mm. in order for teachers to have that freedom to be able to go and do that. There are other schools that, you know, teachers will say, I want to go to my own kids' performance. And for so long, teachers have never been to their kids' performances because, you know, teachers need to be in the classroom. So if we stopped and said instead, why don't we look at what we know about what makes work great, right? What gives you that peak work experience? And then to be able to say, you know, here's what I love about what I'm doing at the moment. Here's what I don't love about what I'm doing at the moment. And then to be able to take the don't love and say, well, there's going to be parts of that that you just have to do, right? You just kind of suck it up and move on. And that's part of it. But are there things within that don't love it group that we can collectively work on a solution for and Mm -hmm. find that? So I find it really interesting. I had um, a great set of colleagues come to me and they were trying to figure out what to do with the department in their school. And they were going to hire someone to come in and do some network analysis about who was working with whom and how it was working. And, and I said, you know, I, I've, you know, dabbled in network analysis a really, really long time ago. And I don't anymore because it often just tells you the what it doesn't tell you the why or the how. And I said, do you know what's wrong in department X? And I said, why are you doing the study? And they said, well, they're not really working well together. They're dysfunctional. They don't do this and they don't do that. And they do this. And I said, okay, so how much are you paying for your network analysis? And they're like, oh, probably like 5,000 pounds. And I said, so you're going to pay 5,000 pounds to get someone to give you data that you're going to already use up some of the time and energy that your teachers have to collect this data. You're going to feed back the data. Do you know what the answer is? And they said, well, this is the problem. And I said, but this data is not going to give you the end, even identify that. Yeah. What's stopping you going in and saying this behavior is unacceptable, right? It is no longer okay as a department for you to behave this way because of this, 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 and this, what are you going to do to fix it? Come and tell, talk to us in a week. And I think that all over the world, we've gotten to the point where we have stopped being able to say, this isn't okay. Like, it's not okay for you to be racist. It's not okay for you to be sexist. It's not okay for you to, you know, run this particular power trip and it's affecting our students and it's affecting our lives and you must stop. Mm -hmm. And we'll give you some freedom to come up with an alternative solution. But we need to sort of, my, my answer to your question about in 15 years, what would it look like? It would look like we focus on and equip our leaders and teachers to be able to say, this is what will make me satisfied at work. And we know what those levers are at the moment, but we are not spending enough attention on helping people. Like, I think the biggest mistake we've made is calling them difficult conversations or uncomfortable conversations. They're conversations. They're not microaggressions. They're aggressions, right? Like if you're an ass, you're an ass, whether you do it as a micro or a full on one. And if, um, it's, it's just the, the names we put on things are bad. So if, if humans could actually show up to work as full adult learners with flaws and faults and that we work to help them get better and we have those you know difficult conversations just become conversations, yeah. that's what will keep people in the job. And that's what will make our students better because they're being taught by people who feel respected. And at yeah. the moment, so many teachers and leaders don't feel respected. That's oh, that's fantastic, Karen. And I think it just it really, I think illuminates the role of culture, and yep. and structure, and how those are two of those 
things we have to pay attention to. Uh, you know, workplace design, being a designer of your own contribution, you know, agency. <laughs> you know, agency is a key theme um, for this whole decade, I think. Um, and what I think is interesting is that as, as scholars often, right, we, we tag it with workplace design and we tag it with agency. And for the, for the teacher, what they want is a job that I can do that I can love. Right. Sure. So design seems like a process that's way too complicated. Yeah, conceptual. Like yeah. what will make it work and amazing? Yeah. And you know, <laughs> so in good. terms of agency, it's like, do you feel like you have control over making your life better at the moment? And mm. if you don't, how can we find you some? So I think it, yeah, it goes really back to like even our conversation has been really helpful because I'm in the I'm sort of in the the sort of fallow phase. So I'm finishing off writing a couple of books, which have taken way too much time in case my publishers are listening. Um, and, and part of that has been because we've been in a pandemic. I've been through a divorce. I'm pretty much a single parent of an amazing kid. We have a puppy. So like even in my own academic life, I've delivered on everything, all of my core tasks I've done, but I've done it under sort of extreme unprecedented pressure. I was on crutches for 500 days, like in the last five years. And you people don't see that. They see the sort of, you know, everything works. But yeah. every single one of us are trying to make our jobs better, make a difference and design a better future. We just use different language for it. And we're mm. bringing different baggage to that proposition. So for me, if leaders were able to, you know, it's almost like going to work, there should be like a baggage check-in, like when you go to the airport, Right. Like I would like to unload my I used to joke after divorce that like I had a full set of Louis Vuitton, really posh, really heavy, full bags. Like my my baggage was was broad and, and deep. But there should be a way that we can actually acknowledge what the baggage is, check it in when we yeah. go to work, understand that we're going to carry, you know, our passport, which is the legacy of what we've we've had to live through. Mm. But finding ways to create those safe spaces and and just you know, that notion of minimalism and just being able to sort of understand what we can push aside and just put down. We don't have to carry everything all the time. God, this is just, this is life, really, isn't it, Karen, as much as yeah. leadership? I mean, and I think that's a profound point. You know, how do we lead uh, authentically as who we are and bring kind of the passport, I feel like to say the passport of kind of our emotional inheritance? our own journey, you know, and passport, everyone's passport has different stamps in it because we're all living yeah. unique uh, lives. Oh, it's been a fantastic conversation, Karen, as always. Um, I don't know how you're going to do this, but how, how, what is the take-home message from our conversation that you want to leave our listeners with? You know, a sentence or two uh, that you think, you know, it kind <coughs> of really, really encapsulates um, the way that you're contributing at the moment? So um, there are two things that I think are helpful. One, I'm gonna poach from a colleague at UCL who is an absolutely brilliant organizational development expert. And her name is Catherine Stowe. And one of the things that she asked me when I was going through a particularly interesting time at work was what would make this easy? And it was really easy for me to answer that question, right? It would be easy if, this was gone, this was gone, this was gone, and I was able to do this. And no one had ever asked me that question before. Hmm. And I use it a lot with leaders and, and people that I work with, even with Isaac, and say like, what, you know, and I always quote Catherine Stowe, um, but I always sort of say like, what would make this easy? And we, we usually know the answers to those questions. And I think as we talk about sort of finding our way through in a really complicated time, reminding yourself to say, what would make this easy? Mm. And then trying to, you know, bring in the resources that you need to actually make that possible. So for me, it means the dog is having a sleepover at her groomers for two days, because what would make it easy for me to pack without her getting anxious that she's not coming and to focus on the work I need to do was just to have some quiet time. And then the second thing I would say, am I allowed to have a second thing? You can, of course. Um, in our study, our global city leaders study, we you know talked to hundred leaders across London, New York, and Toronto about what about leadership, about generation, about gender, about race, about all sorts of things. And there were two messages that have resonated from that. 
And often when we do talks or when I do talks, we'll, we'll sort of close with the message of walk slowly and carry one bag. And given that it was the largest leadership study that was funded by our research council, the message of walk slowly and carry one bag can seem quite pithy. But based on our data and our analysis, the message that kept coming out, especially in big urban centers was, when you're a leader and you run, people will assume that there's an emergency and they will run after you to see what it is. And the metaphor of walking slowly is one where, you know, if you walk slowly into your leadership or your teacher leadership, you actually change the presence that you bring to it. People assume that you have things under control. It doesn't mean you're lying, but it means that people are more willing to ask somebody who looks like they have time to do something, to do something. Mm-hmm. And the carry one bag is that we, we noticed that so many of the leaders, especially women leaders, were carrying like a lunch bag and a gym bag and a school bag. And that teachers and leaders were taking home these enormous bags at the end of every day to do marking and everything else. And the bags would sit in their hallway and then they would bring the bags back to school. And they were sending out a message that there was so much work that needed to be done after work that other people looking up to these leaders didn't want their job. And it turned out that most of the people taking all these bags home didn't do the work that was in them when they brought them home anyway. So they became known as the guilt bag. And one of the things that I will often say now is the only person who should be carrying a suitcase to and from work, well, other than lawyers possibly, is um, a flight attendant. You do not need a suitcase to go to and from a school unless there are very, very significant reasons, because your inability to carry your life in one bag means that it's not doable. Nobody glamorous yeah. and professional carries a gazillion bags. So my, my, close, my closing is, you know, you know, walk slowly, carry one bag, and ask the question, what would make this easy? Karen, what a delightful conversation. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Thank you for taking such good care of sort of setting up the experience and and making it fun. Thank you. It always is. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.